Everybody likes a good comeback story. Everyone likes to be part of a comeback. And all of you have seen or witnessed or watched God come through in an amazing way to take insurmountable odds and watch an individual, watch a group of people, watch a team overcome the odds and come back. We love being parts of them. We don't necessarily like when they're done to us. A team comes back against us. But our hope is this year, once you get off the bus, you believe, and we're believing and asking that this would be a chance for you to come back, that this would be the comeback year for you. All of us are at different places in our walk. And we love when God comes through. And so our hope is this, is somehow we will see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven hundred comeback stories where we get off the bus and we come back and we get into the game. As a sports enthusiast and a Maryland Terrapin fan, me and my, my two sons and my daughter, my wife roots for Michigan State. I love her for that and because she's my wife. And she loves me for that, that I root for Maryland Terrapins. When we dated in college, she would call them the Maryland Twerps, but that's okay. I loved her and I still love her. There was a time in 2001 when the Maryland Terrapins were uh, a favorite that year to win the national championship. They were ranked number two, and they were in a game. They had a great team, and they were playing against Duke. And if you've ever been a Maryland fan, you root for Maryland and anyone who plays against Duke. Duke is your nemesis. And they were in a basketball game that was a pretty significant game. That year, 2001... Um, was a, a big year for them. The following year in 2002, to give you some background, they were the national champions and they beat the University of Indiana. It was a great year for me and it wasn't for you, I'm sure. Um, but in any case, Maryland was playing Duke. There was one minute left in the game, 60 seconds left in the game. They had played well for, for the whole game and they came down for the last 60 seconds. They made a layup and went up 90 to 80. They were up 10 points with 60 seconds left in the game. I remember watching this game and thinking, it's over. It's, it's over. I mean, Maryland, yes, we're going to beat Duke, and we're going to maybe move up to number one in the nation, and, and it was an exciting moment. And then something took place that it was hard for me this week to pull up the video and watch it again, because it brought up all these memories of sitting there and watching this game and the yuckiness of feeling that. And even as I have to watch it three times today, just to show my point, in Jesus' name, I'll do that. That's how I'll do it today. But um, 90 to 80, 60 seconds left. It's even called, it's called the miracle minute in sports. Jason Williams, who was the point guard for Duke that year, had hadn't hardly played well up to that moment. They did an interview with him and Coach K from the University of Duke. And they go back and they recall what Duke was able to do. It's one of the greatest comeback victories in NCAA basketball. Watch this and I'll shut my eyes, but watch it. Up to that point in the Maryland game, he had one of the most horrendous games that a kid of his ability could ever have. And then something turned on. And for him, if one thing turned on, then boom. All these things could turn on, and they did. And uh, he just, he could, he and the game can, could become one. Not many players can do that. We were coming out of the huddle, and it was one of those huddles where, you know, coach always had a good way about expressing that we always stay in the fight, right? Uh, we're never going to concede. We're always going to continue to fight all the way through, even if we lose. And he gave this great speech, and... Shane Battier got us all in the huddle, and we're talking about how we're going to go into our full court press on the main shot. And uh, all of a sudden, it w- I don't usually hear fans, but 
at that moment, I heard fans yelling overrated, right? And I said before I was a guy, I had to play angry. And for some reason, just hearing people say overrated, overrated, and Jay Williams, you suck, and it just got me pissed off, man. The crowd on their feet. Williams goes down the lane to lay it in. Duke can no longer stop the clock. 53-5 to go. It's an eight-point lead. Get a quick layup, and then I'll never forget Drew Nicholas, you know, he had this look on his face that he didn't really want the basketball, right? And we had fouled Steve Blake out at the time on that drive. And, and Drew got the ball, went to the corner, and I swiped down, got the ball, knocked down a three. And then you just saw that look in Maryland's eyes where they're like, oh, man, like, what's about to happen? And you fouled Drew Nicholas again. And trust me, the whole way down the court, Chris Duhon and I are yapping in his ear, like about, hey, this is going to be short. Hey, this is going to be long. He ain't ready to make this shot. He's not a big-time player. He comes off the bench, Chris, right? We know Scott. I mean, we were talking to him the whole time. And he missed the shot. He missed both shots. Missed them both. Duhon with a rebound. It's a five-point game. Duke has the ball. Do you believe what you're seeing? Oh. It's another three. It's a two-point game. And then came down the screen and roll again. I'll never forget. Shane's like, hey, I'm going to headhunt your man. Just come off me and let it fly. Right? That's, again, your teammate after a horrible game, right, telling you, let it fly. And Danny Miller closed out to me with his hands down. And as soon as I saw his hands down, I'm like, hey, man, this thing is going up. And it goes up and it goes in. And it's like, all of a sudden, it's a two-point ball game. And everybody in that gym was like, what just happened? Dixon into the lane. Oh, Mario Watson. Unbelievable. Williams with the ball. Wow. It's the most remarkable wow. comeback I have ever seen. The best part about that game was we come back, the game goes into OT, we win. And Shane Batty, and this is one of the best things about Shane Batty and about that team, we're going to win that game, right? And it's a miraculous comeback, and everybody talks about it. But Shane Batty says, hey, listen, nobody celebrate. Let's walk off the court. We expected to come back and win this game. That's how we have to hold ourselves, to that high of a standard. And that was the best feeling, walking off that court and shaking their hand. It's been like, yep, okay, next game. Team hard hearing that. We redeemed ourselves in 2002 by winning the national championship. But that was an amazing comeback. In fact, it's called the Miracle Minute. One of the greatest comebacks ever in NCAA basketball. I love what he said, though. Maybe you picked up on it. We expect it to win. Even though we were down by 10 points, with one minute to go, we expect it to win. And we played as if we were going to win. So I think about that in the game of life. I think about that as Christ followers. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. We are children of the living God. And when he is on our side, no weapon formed against us will ever prosper. There's no odds that are stamped against us that we can't overcome in the name of Jesus Christ. This could be the year. 2017, where we see comeback after comeback after comeback. Anybody want to be part of that this coming year? This could be the year. 
that we see God work in an incredible way. There's nothing, no, no matter how, how bad your past, no matter what you think can't put you in the game. Maybe, maybe you're on the bus and you're saying, but I've tried it before. I went to the free throw line before and I miss. And so I don't even want the ball at the end of the game anymore. Don't, don't even give it to me. Give it to someone else. I'll just sit and watch someone else. Now, maybe fear is keeping you from getting back in the game. Maybe, maybe a sin. Maybe there's this despicable sin in your life. Maybe there's a divorce. Maybe there's a deficit. Maybe there's a dash dream. But hear me out. Nothing can stop us in the name of Jesus if he empowers us to do it. It's time to get off the bus and make some comebacks. I'm going to show you a story, one of the most amazing, I would say, stories in the Old Testament of someone who literally should have been headed to hell. They should not deserve anything good for what they did. But God, because he loves us far more than we could ever love anyone else, extends grace, allows this king to get back in the game and make one of the most amazing comebacks that are, that are literally stamped in scripture. Like if you hold this story up against your life, it's like his odds to ever come back and roll again were, were in most people's eyes, it would never happen. Grab your Bibles and you're going to see an amazing comeback in the name of Jesus. Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up or ushers will put one in your hand. But turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles chapter 33 and we're going to read verses 1 through 9 to begin the story of a man by the name of Manasseh, the king of Israel. And we're going to watch God help him come back. And become who he was intended to be. Stand with me and we'll read chapter 33, 2 Chronicles, Old Testament, verses 1 through 9. Let's read this together out loud. Ready? Read. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Just pause. 12-year-old king. Like, imagine this week, our new president of the United States, junior high boy, walks up. What the what just happened? So anyhow, just I don't want you to pause there and think about that for a second. Sometimes, yeah, 12-year-old, what's next? Holy cow, praise God. 12-year-old king became king, read with me, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the testable practice of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hanna. Like, woo! Like, good guy, huh? King of Israel, read on, practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. He took the image he had made and put it in God's temple, of which God had said to David and to his son Solomon. In this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites leave the land I assigned to your ancestors. If only they will be careful to do everything. I commanded them concerning all the laws, decrees, and regulations given through Moses. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. You may have a seat. 
It's almost like we need to put a, a period and say, and God's wrath came upon him and sent the angel of the Lord and lopped his head off. Like, that's what you would think, wouldn't you? Like, okay, why are we having this story, Pastor Jim? This guy practiced witchcraft and visited astrology and astrologists and omens and, and sacrificed his own kids because he wanted to offer them to demonic gods. And here's what I know today. Here's what I want you to know in 2017. You and I are never too far away from God for a comeback. Never too far. Never too far away from God. But just hit the pause button a second and let's set this story up and give you a little background here. He was 12 years old when he began to reign. We know from history, from biblical history, his father, Hezekiah, had a a weak point in his life, but overall was a godly king, and he reigned. He reigned with his son for 10 years. It's probably a good thing he reigned with him when he was 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, up to 22. So for 10 years, he reigned with his father. And the text says he reigned for 55 years. Are you kidding me? How did that happen? So we know that he was young. He reigned with his dad. We also know that he built starry, he built altars to starry hosts, and he sacrificed his own children, murdered them to Baal, to to demonic idols. He was the king of Israel. Yahweh, God, and he's sending in these children and saying, I'm taking your life. Even though I'm king of Israel, I'm going to worship Satan. It got so bad that he actually worshiped Satan by sacrificing his own children in the fire. Now keep in mind, he was raised in a spiritual oasis, ruled with his dad. Everything about his life should have been everything that God wanted it to be. He watched his father rule. He probably heard stories when he put him at bed at night and said, hey, worship God, love God, and keep his commandments. And so he was raised in the family. He watched his dad rule. And yet at the same time, he grew up, co-reigned, but still chose to rebel against God in an incredible, credible way. In fact, in verse 2, it says this, the author says this, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practice of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. In verse 6, it says, he sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced divination, witchcraft, sought omens, consulted mediums and spiritists. And then it says this, he did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing God's what? Anger. You would think at what point, like at what point will God say, I'm done, finished. Listen, you're done. Is there a point? And you would think if there's a point, like God, that's got to be it. That's got to be it. You just sent your children and sacrificed them. You worship Baals and, and other names that weren't God in, in the church itself. Like at that point you say, there's no way this guy would ever get a comeback. Never get a comeback. He took the image he made and put it in God's temple. Not only did he step away, but some of his own leaders switched their jerseys too. Let me just pull away and say something. I've always wondered this. Like, I don't understand this. I don't know how it's even possible. Because we know when he ruled, he didn't go build the altars himself. He didn't set up these idols himself. He, he, he had help. How in the world did these 
leaders under him. How in the world did these followers of God who had served under Hezekiah, how in the world did they let their leader sacrifice their own kid? How in the world is that possible? Because they worship God too. I've always been perplexed by that in this one. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I don't understand when I read this account. I just stand back and I say, how in the world could that ever happen? Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Always been perplexed by this. 2 Samuel chapter 11. David and Bathsheba account. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 and look at verse 2. It says this. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman, what? What does it say? Bathing. The woman was very what? Beautiful. And David sent who? What's it say? Someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent what? What's it say? Messengers to what? What's it say? She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. And it said, then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am what? I got to ask this question. Why didn't someone in his leadership say, are you kidding me? She's a married woman. How in the world? Why in the world would you bring him back to the king? Why in the world would someone ever assist in the sin of their leader? How is that possible? When we say it happened over and over and over again. We're watching it with Manasseh. How in the world could these God worshipers not say enough is enough? Why in the world didn't a real friend step in and take him out behind the woodshed and speak some truth to him? Because that's what real friends do. A real teammate doesn't let his teammate do something stupid and choose to join him and assist him in his sin. So what happens? Look at chapter 33. Look at verse 9. Look what it says. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem, what's the word? Astray. So they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. How in the world could a God-fearing group of people do more evil than Assyria? Then the Babylonians, how in the world? Because they followed this leader who had desecrated the temple. Take a look at this picture. Total destruction. I mean, Manasseh is stinking it up for three quarters of his life. So we should read. Wouldn't you think we would read? And God wiped him out, sent the angel of the Lord and lopped off the heads and brought a new regime in new leadership in, who would follow hard after God. First quarters, first three quarters of his life. If you look at his life up to now, like, it's not very pretty. Like, how in the world can he ever make a comeback? How can he finish the fourth quarter and, and, and ever turn this around? He was stinking it up. There's many ways you do that, and I do that, and we do that. There's many ways that we stay on the bus and make it a tour bus. There's many ways that we do it. Sometimes it's just pure laziness. Some of you have been sitting on the bus too long, and it's just pure laziness. 
You, you, you don't want to get out and work hard. You don't want to get out and serve. You, 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 and you don't want to do the disciplined work that it takes to be a soldier and a teammate of God. And you're one cheeseburger away from a heart attack. And you're saying, I used to be able to, but no more. It's just too hard. It's too difficult. And so you just choose to stay in this cycle of insanity, sitting on the bus and not stepping out and becoming the person that God wants you to be. Some of you are believing that the best days are behind you. I'm too old and I've had my days. Let's let the young people serve. By the way, who said and made the rule that when you turn a certain age that you don't play and serve on God's team anymore like you did before? Like who made that rule? Who said when you're 55, you can't serve God anymore? When you're 25, 35, 45, 65, 75. Listen to me, as long as you're alive, as long as, as you're breathing, I'm, I'm just checking to see if you're, hold your hand out in front of you, just make sure you're alive. Go ahead. Now just blow air into your hand. Go ahead. Go ahead. Come on. Some of you are sitting there like you're dead. Come on. Now blow air in your hand. If you just felt oxygen and, and carbon dioxide leave, guess what? You're alive. Check and make sure everyone is beside you. As long as you're breathing, God wants you in the game. He doesn't want you sitting on the bus. He has a role for you. He's gifted you. He, he skilled you. He's got you playing a certain part on this team. Maybe you're just too busy with other things and you've placed other things above God. Let me just tell you something, just so, in case you don't know this. Anything you place above God, God will never bless. Maybe you're angry at God, reason you're not in the game. You're mad at people. You're angry at coworkers. You're, you're mad at your pastors. You're mad at your church. You're mad at your deacons. You're mad, you're mad, you're mad because you didn't get what you wanted. You're just mad. I'm not getting the game. You're mad at your coach. He only gave you 60 seconds of playing time. So you go home and tell your parents, I'm mad at the coach. I didn't, he don't play me. He doesn't see my talent. Hey, if he gets you in there for 30 seconds and that's all that's left in the game, we've always taught our kids, listen, you run with all you got. You cheer from the bench as much as you can. You are a teammate. You play your role no matter what that role is. You do it to the best of your ability. Maybe you're stinking it up because you had a hard or difficult time in your life and it's sidelined you for too long. Or maybe it's just blatant sin. Listen, the Christian walk was never intended just to be a young man's walk. It's a man and woman's walk from all ages and all tribes and all nations who have Jesus Christ living in them. Amen. See, this is a moment. This is, listen to me. I don't know what your, what your thing is. I don't know. And I, I look out here. I know some of you used to be, you used to stand on the front lines at Grace Community Church. Now you just drifted away, trying to find your place. And you know what happens? Be careful. Because you lost that accountability. You've, you've lost that touch. You lost, you lost that fire in your heart. And you know you've lost it. Listen, this is the year to get back on the front lines. This is the year to make a comeback for Jesus. Problem is this is we shouldn't be so distracted and irritated by the sins of others that we fail to continue to examine and confess the sin in us. God does not give up on his team. Our coach will never throw in the white towel. Let me explain. As a kid, I was a big boxing fan, and I grew up in the ear where 
era where um, Smoke and Joe Frazier and Cassius Clay, he was called Cassius Clay before he was Muhammad Ali and, and Ken Norton. And I was a big boxing fan and we would stay up late on Friday nights and watch boxing. And I liked Smoke and Joe Frazier. Some of the best boxing matches I ever saw was when Smoke and Joe got in against Muhammad Ali. And it was, man, I can remember as a kid just watching and cheering and rooting him on. And, but every boxer has a corner man. And in his corner, the, the, the trainer has a chance at any moment during the bout to throw in the white towel. And so he would have a towel, and if he felt like it was time for his, his guy to give up, if he felt like he was getting beat, if he felt like he, he, he needed to retreat from the battle, the trainer would literally throw in the white towel. And when the towel hit the floor, the referee would come in and he would call the fight. He'd say, it's over. He's, he's done. He, he, he doesn't have what it takes anymore. He is finished. And so all throughout the bouts and all throughout ma- boxing matches, the corner man would have a chance to throw the flag. He'd say, he's done. He, he's over. And I don't know for you what your white flag moment has been. And I don't know for you where, where, maybe, where maybe you've thrown in a white flag in the past and, and you're saying, I tried before and I couldn't do it. It, it. But here's what I want you to know. Jesus will never throw the white flag in for you. Never. He will never throw it in. Because he believes there's still fight in you as long as you have air. As long as you are breathing. But the problem is this. We carry these around. We have this, this past, these things that we remember, these stories from our past, this sin. You're thinking, oh, I committed that sin again. That, that disqualifies me. Oh, I tried before, and, and now fear is disabling you. Like, I don't want to touch the ball. Don't give it to me. Give it to someone else. And so we disqualify ourselves. Or the best days are behind me. When I was 30, when I was 20, I, I was able to, but I, I can't do that anymore. Let the young people serve. Oh, I, I, I serve my time, let someone else. I don't know what your white flag moment is, but Jesus doesn't carry white flags for his kids. This is the year. This is the moment. This is the time. Listen to me. I'm speaking to some people here and you know who you are. You've been sitting on the sidelines too long. Believing lies from the enemy. Thinking that my past, this divorce, that this issue, like there, there's too much wrong with me. Listen, as long as you're alive and the Holy Spirit lives in you, no weapon formed against you will ever prosper, ever prosper. God never gives up on his team and God is always ready and willing to treat a man like he can and should be. So what's God do? Look at verse 10. Then it says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no what? Come on, come on, come on, follow on. Come on, come on, come on, get back. Come on, are you you breathing? Blow on your hand. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no what? Tension. See, I love this picture because what was God's first move towards Manasseh after he sinned? He wanted to go talk to him. He didn't disqualify him. He says, come here, Manasseh. I want you to realize something. Listen, you screwed up. It says he, he went after him, wanted to bring him into his office and say, listen, as a coach, as your commander in chief, I want you to know something. And yet it says they did not listen to him. He, he, but his first initiative move was, was to go after him. See, never give up on someone 
no matter what is sidelining them. As long as they are alive, there's always hope for change as long as Jesus reigns. There's also consequences for our sin. Look at verse 11. Look at the consequences. Verse 11 says this. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh what? What's the word? Prisoner. Prisoner. Put a what in his nose? Hook in his nose. Like, oh man. Like, think about that. Put a hook in his nose. Bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. Here's what I know. Sin will keep you further than you're willing to go, cost you more than you were willing to pay, and keep you longer than you were willing to stay. Imagine the scene for a second. Just, just, this is the king of Israel being prodded like a cow with a hook in his nose. It looks like from the outside, it is over. There is no way he could ever make a comeback like this. He was like a sheep being drugged to the slaughter. He was like a piece of tenderloin being pulled by his nostril to the butcher shop. It should be over. Everything about this says over. It looks like it's over. At the root of his sin was this issue. He loved himself more than he did his God, his children, his people, and it became the very thing that reduced him to a piece of tenderloin heading to the market. Yet, 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 but, and praise God for this. God loved him more than his own selfish love he had for himself. God loves us even when we don't deserve it. Amen. I love Romans 5, 8. Paul describes it so beautiful. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So here's what I know about our God. Listen, God sees the past, present, and future of your life before you were created for the foundation of the world. He's a sovereign God in complete control. And, and before he chose you to be on his team, he knew everything about you, every single thing about you. And he still chose you and chose me. So he already was fully aware that there'd be points in our lives when we would walk away from him. But he still offers us grace that we can receive and then walk and be able to stand back up and be the people that he wanted us and intended us to be. As his coach, we would have already tossed in the white towel. It seems hopeless. Maybe that's how you feel today. I don't know. It looks hopeless because you're too far gone. Or you feel like you don't have what it takes to get back in the game. Or maybe you're believing a lie that your best days are behind you. Or even you spend way too much time talking about the glory days of years ago instead of realizing that since God is still living in you, he wants to get you back in the game. As long as you're on the roster, hear me out, Grace Community, as long as you're on the roster, as long as your name's in the playbook, you have a vital role to offer and contribute to the team of Jesus Christ. Get off the bus. So here's the problem, though. This is where the enemy beats you up. Part of the problem is that we tend to remember what we should forget, and we forget what we should remember. 
So we think, oh, I did this and I did that. And last time I tried and, and when I, when I tried to, to, to go back and restore that relationship, it didn't work. So I'm giving up. So, so we remember all that. And then we, and, and we remember all of our sins. We remember things that God has already forgiven and chosen not to remember anymore. So stay in the fight, even if the odds are stacked against you. Look at verse 12. So what's he do? What's he do? Verse 12. Look what it says. In his distress, <laughs> you bet his distress, he sought the what of the Lord? Favor. Like, I want to say, are you kidding me? Like, that took some guts, didn't it? God, I, uh, I murdered my kids, and I, uh, I, I, was, I played Ouija board a lot, and uh, I was at the, the, the spiritist house, and she read my palms. And God, I, I built these altars, and they're really cool. They're made out of gold, and, and I've taken down the name Yahweh, removed it from the temple, and, and I've put up Baal. And, like, and, and I want you to know we're offering sacrifices, and everyone else is too, to another God. And, and I know there's a, a, a nose ring in me, and, and, and so, Lord, how about some favor? Are you kidding me? Like, let me ask you a second. If you had God, chance to be God for 10 seconds, what would you have done? See, it's good that we're not God because our God loves us unconditionally. Our God chooses not to remember what we have done. And the truth of the matter is this. Look what it says. Read on with me. It says, and in his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself. What's it say? How, how much? Greatly before the God of his ancestors. Every one of us has blown it big time. And every one of us has to ask this question when a person humbles himself. Will we give him a second chance? Will we give him a third chance? Will we give him a fourth chance? Will we give him a fifth chance? How many chances will we give him? And when he prayed to him, it says this in verse 13. Look on verse 13. Look what it says. He asked for help. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and did what to his plea? Listen, are you kidding me? So he brought him what? There it is. Come on back, Manasseh. Time for come. He brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is what? Let me just say something. God has the ability that we don't. It says he humbled himself greatly. In my experience, personal experience, and experience of others, when we truly repent of our sin, I believe true repentance has tears. I believe when we truly have repented of our sins, there's tears of brokenness. And when God sees that, he restores us. So he was looking at Manasseh and he said, he, he, he gave a plea, this entreaty to God. And he said, he humbled himself greatly. And when God looked down, listen what he does. He didn't put him on probation. He immediately restored him. He didn't say, hey, let's watch him for six months. Let's, let's watch him for a year. Let's watch him for two years. Let's see if he does enough good to get back. Not even just back, but to reign. When God sees sincere repentance, let me tell you what. He chooses not to remember your sins anymore, and he sets you free. He resets your future. This week, we went to Sprint as a family, and we were on a contract with them, and we're 
time to rethink and do a two-year contract. So, yes, we're Sprint users. And by the way, let me answer the question. Is Sprint, is it a good plan? It's a good plan. So quit asking on Facebook, okay? Quit it. (laughs) Holy cow. Like, yes! I'll leave it there. So we went in and realized it's time to make a change. And, and, and so we saw what we had and we saw what was available. And we got a 40 gigabyte plan. And before we had 12 gigabytes, we got an incredible deal. So listen up, way to go Sprint. You can do with that what you want, but it was awesome. So we go in there and so the salesman is asking us, your old phones you had to hand back in. And we want the new phone. So he kept asking, did you back it up? And I was like, oh, do we back it up? And so back it up. So did you, did you put it on iCloud? Did, did you use iTunes and back up your photos? Is there a backup somewhere? Because once you reset this old phone, you don't get what you didn't back up. And so we're looking at each other. You know your passwords? I don't have it written down. And so we were like together, like some of us were right on, some of us weren't. I'll leave names going, praise God, praise Jesus, amen. <laughs> and so we had our phones and it's like, I know my iCloud, it's on iCloud. And you know, so, so, so we had this old phone and we picked out these new phones. We we're ready to be reset, do a factor reset. And so we're excited about getting new phones. And then we all stand there and he says, by the way, when you go to settings, when you go to general, and when you scroll down to reset, it's a factory reset. Whatever, and whenever you hit reset, you don't get it back. And we were all kind of like. <laughs> so we all scrolled down, and we found reset. I was like, <laughs> please, Jesus. And we hit reset. And you know what happened in that moment? Everything that was on that phone, every photo that we have ever taken, every website that we have ever visited, every app that we had ever purchased, every text that we had ever sent, every email that we had saved, every single one of them, factory reset, gone. And remember, we handed our phones over to him. And he took them, and we handed them to him. And what it meant... That everything up to that point, unless we had the new saved, was gone. And then he handed us, in my case, iPhone 7. By the way, it rocks. (laughs) I left, and we left the Sprint store with new phones. And this old phone that had all of our history was now going to be in the hands of someone else. And when they would open up that phone and open it up, it would be completely reset of our history as if it was never there. Listen, that's what Jesus does for us when we confess and ask for forgiveness. We hand in the old and he gives us the seven. Praise God. It's never too late to be what you might have been. So look what God does for Manasseh. Look at verse 14. Afterward, he rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David, west of Gihan, spring in the valley. 
as far as the entrance of the fish gate and encircling the hill of Afo. He also made it much higher. He stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities in Judah. He got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as all the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem. And he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. The people, however, continued to sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. The other events of Manasseh's reign, including his prayer to his God and the words the seers spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, are written in the annals of the kings of Israel. His prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty as well as all his sins and unfaithfulness and the sites where he built high places and set up Asherah poles and idols before he humbled himself. All these are written in the records of the seers. Manasseh rested with his ancestors and was buried in his palace and Ammon, his son, succeeded him as king. The fire that should have consumed him and sent him to hell is now a fire that's burning in his heart for the Lord. He served after serving with his father for 45 more years and served as the longest king good king up to that point. You talk about a comeback story. The very same king that murdered his kids is now throwing out all the Ouija boards, throwing out all the spiritists, tearing down the Asher poles that he set up. And now he is worshiping his God and he's living to his redeemed potential because there was a factory reset in his life. Praise God. See, there is not a person or a situation that God can't redeem. And it's not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is that we can make a comeback. Truth of the matter is this. Sometimes the wrong choices in our lives bring us to the right places. Repentance and humility. We are one prayer away from making an incredible comeback this year. Think about this too. I want you to, process this for a second. You will never be asked to forgive someone else more than God has forgiven you. Maybe for you this year, you got to forgive someone. Maybe that's your comeback story. You're holding on. Think about what all that Christ has forgiven us from. Let me just ask this question. Just ask the Holy Spirit to work in your heart and process these questions. Where have you thrown in the towel? Like, what is it? I tried it before, can't do it anymore. I'm not, I'm not as good as I used to be. It's too hard, it's too difficult. I'm mad, I'm angry. I like sitting on the sidelines and watching other people. This sin that no one knows about. Where are you throwing in the white towels? Listen, it's time to get rid of the white towels and trust in Jesus. It's time to live to your redeemed potential. It's time to grab your jersey, lace up your sneaks, and make a comeback in 2017. This story could have ended with Manasseh in verse 11 with a hook in his nose and shackles on his legs and wrists, but grace and mercy gave him a new factory reset. Oh, Lord, help us today. I don't know where people are at, but I know this. After watching the other services that some of us need to get off the bus and get back in the game 
and make a comeback. Some of us are wasting our potential. Some of us are letting the lies of the enemy. Some of us have been sitting on the sidelines too long. Some of us have white towels stuffed in our briefcases, in our backpacks, in our pockets, in our lunchboxes, in our cars. Some of us know that fear is keeping us from getting back in because the last time we tried, we didn't make it. Listen to me. No divorce, no deficit, no dashed dream, no despicable sin is unredeemable in Jesus' name. So I'm going to ask you to do something with your eyes closed. Just stand with me, please, in the main and the link. And If you're watching by internet, just, just ask you to stand there. All throughout our services today, this is the point where the thing that was the turnaround in Manasseh's life was repentance, humility. And maybe for you, it's just repenting of laziness. Maybe for you, it's just, you're just lazy. Maybe for you, it's, it's just believing a lie that you can't do it. And maybe for you, you get anger and unforgiveness in your heart. And maybe it's a despicable sin. I don't, I don't know what it is. But listen to me, if you want to make a comeback and exalt the name of God and play for the name on the front of your jersey, Jesus Christ, and not the name on your back, then if you humble yourself greatly, God will lift you up. So I'm going to ask you to do something. We're about to sing a song. We're going to declare this truth that we're forgiven, and we're going to declare this truth that because of Jesus, we can, can march on. But I'm to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to come, and this is just between you and God. This is all by yourself. Just come to the altar in the front and the link in the main and just kneel, and I want you to just lay that thing that's, that's causing you to hesitate, causing you from living to your redeemed potential. And just confess it. Now listen to me. When God sees that, that's the turning point. That's when the comeback comes. That's when you begin to see God work in ways that only he can. So as we sing this psalm, we ask you, now listen, the Spirit's probably pounding in your heart. Listen, just gently or just knock somebody over. I don't care, whatever it takes. It's too important. Just, just come and kneel. Let's get it started right in 2017 as we sing this song. In Jesus' name. Amen.